with whatever compromises, concessions, and conformity that requires. The inability for Harvard students to question or oppose their irrational bureaucratic excesses bodes ill for our ability to meet future challenges. That is not optimistic. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Dougals, it's good to talk. How are you? I'm doing solid. On the road. Of our 70-ish episodes, I swear one of us has been on the road for 30% of those. (laughs) Anecdotal percentage. It's, uh, it's interesting, though, getting back to traveling, especially this week is when the mask mandate came off, right, for some airlines. So it's a, a new world, but an old world at the same time. Um, I was still sporting mine, but I was in rare company. I mean, I'll tell you, I can sympathize with both sides on this one. I've done some of those flights like to Hawaii. Uh, we connected and, you know, that's a 10-hour flight or whatever by the time you do a stop somewhere. Having a mask on for 10 hours straight is not fun, but that always makes you think of the little kids that sport that day in, day out uh, without complaint. They're better than me. Kids are just better than adults. I think generally, you know, it's a, yeah, it is what it is. Even adults, Um, you ever think about this in the work setting? Like occasionally, you know, the elementary age boys will like throw something or hit something. But at at the end of the day, they're generally kind and compassionate to each other. I'd almost Mm -hmm. prefer a workplace where occasionally someone like threw a stapler across the room, but the rest of the time they acted like an (laughs) elementary school. Extreme volatility. but (laughs) I can handle a little outburst if they're kind the rest of the time rather than like stabbing people in the back. Sometimes you got to get it out. You just got to get it out. It's it's actually, it's kind of like we talked about on the investing side where you got that little bit of like tiny bit of play money you know just to like release the whatever endorphins you got bottled up right but the rest of it is like nice cool calm like it follows the methodology right every now and again you're like i'm gonna buy a hundred dollars in crypto that's about to get stolen you know (laughs) like just sometimes you just gotta get it out I do think that's so critical more and more with experience you see people want to take these investing experiments, risk, however you classify them, you need a little pool of money to be able to do that and sometimes make like a more rash decision without uh, ruining your retirement. Because you still, many times, you still get the same rush, right? You, like you still have a little bit of quote unquote skin in the game. It makes you follow whatever that investment is, right? You still get some of that, that emotional turmoil around it, but it's actually not a big risk, right? So it's kind of, it's kind of nice. Yeah. And for me, investing is so much about learning. I was talking to my son this week about his, uh, basically his college fund. And he was going, tell me about it. And I was like, well, you own ownership of companies. And he's like, I do. That's awesome. Like what type of companies do I own? You know? And, uh, it was it just really, you can see the interest there yeah. and when you explain it that way and you, when you explain it in the way that it actually is, it's true ownership of a company rather than just buying some investment you don't understand. Super cool, man. Love it. Before we get in, anyone can go to skippydougals.com. To, it's our one-stop shop for things like our Substack. If you want to get notifications about with links 
um, when we release episodes. Uh, you can also see our premium subscription links in there and whatnot. So skippydougals.com, you can head there. And also please rate and review the podcast helps people to find us. So click on that, click on those stars, leave us a nice little review uh, if you love what we do. So, you know, Diggles, you know, who's hitting and skippydougals.com these days. Oh, l- let me know. Let me know. The students at Harvard. <laughs> this Harvard. article knocked my socks off. So you share this with me uh, midweek or maybe early last week, and I just couldn't click on it because the title of this article is Harvard students are COVID sheep. And I was just like, I don't want another, <laughs> I don't want another political, wherever this is going, yep. I don't want to go, right? This is by Julie Hartman, who is a current Harvard student. The subtitle is, we yield to irrational pandemic restrictions to get the next credential, future leaders we aren't. I don't want to dive in too much without saying that we'll put this on the Twitter. You should read it. Even if you have the same concerns I have about you're sick of the politics around COVID, this cuts through that pretty quickly in a way that I think is just brilliant. I really, really like this. Now, Miss Hartman here appears to be pitching a podcast, so maybe that's what's going on, but this is incredibly well-written. I never, when I read things like this, I never know how representative like the quotes that they use etc are but I, I found it to be pretty interesting the uh the way that the harvard student body was categorized uh, and described in this and i drop a a quote to get into this university we chose to detach ourselves from normal human experiences neglecting our interests hobbies robust social lives anything that couldn't appear on a college application or be touted in an interview that is saying and where, where this leads, we'll talk to, that is saying Harvard students, it's a hard school to get into. It is low uh, acceptance rates, right? And so in order to get in, students, when they're in high school or whatever their, their previous uh, education was, you basically just focus on getting in and you don't have that social experience anyway. And so when it comes to giving things up during COVID, NBD, that's where we were before, is kind of what, uh, what she's saying here. Yeah, the pitch ties to... Um, she, she references COVID cheap, but basically the large majority of the student body did whatever the administrative asked without any critical thought. It, that quote continues, Dougal, Dougal's, it says, almost everything in life was subordinate to whatever was necessary to get into college. Once we arrived on campus, we certainly had more fun than we did in high school, but the tendency to conform hasn't gone away, especially as we pursue our next goal, whether it's Goldman Sachs or graduate school, blah, blah, blah. That this article ends with another brilliant quote. Our principal concern in being member, so when talks about how Harvard students often get told they're the next leaders of America, she goes, our principal concern is often become members of the American elite with whatever compromises, concessions, and conformity that requires. The inability for Harvard students to question or oppose their irrational bureaucratic excesses bodes ill for our ability to meet future challenges. That is not optimistic. <laughs> optimistic, it is not. There's, <laughs> there's something going on here, though. Again, this is just so well articulated, and I think you can take the the political aspect out of it. There's this fine line between striving for that next goal against all cost and actually being someone who prides themselves on critical thought and mm-hmm. maybe marching to their own drumbeat 
And that is not what she is saying these folks pride themselves on. Um, there's a little bit earlier in the piece, it says that the COVID decrees were a relief to students because now they were able to retreat, which is like where they kind of knew they were. It's like a, it's, it's, I don't know if I go as far as to say sad, but definitely not happy. It's, uh, it just makes you think, you know, my wife is an attorney, so we talk, we do a lot of legal strategy in this house, right? And uh, we end up talking about the Supreme Court and everything else. I think it's sad that in order to get into the Supreme Court, this is not a critique of Harvard itself, but basically you have to have gone to Harvard and Yale uh, or Yale, right? That's not the way it was 100 years ago or even 50 years ago. You could be a superstar, uh, super bright attorney from almost any place in America, from almost any school, whether it's a state school or uh, an elite Ivy League institution and be thought of as having merit for an institution like that. And I've seen more of society seem to have these certain check boxes, like certain degrees in investing even. You have to have, you know, University of Chicago or um, an Ivy League school or something like that. And I just think it's really short-sighted because you, you put everyone through, in, in having a checklist like that, you get conformity and a lack of diversity. And Douglas, we've talked about the lack of diversity and in investing many times on this podcast. Yeah, I, I, I find it to be interesting that sometimes, maybe a lot of times even, these tools or practices, processes that I believe from the start of them were created to quote unquote democratize some whatever it might be to, to provide access right for others end up doing the exact opposite once they get to scale what i mean by that is if you take an example of like linkedin uh, linkedin is something that is a, a product that makes it easy for people to put themselves out there right to put their their professional life their uh their resume right online it makes it easy to find people right because now like everyone's on this network you can find folks but once you get to hundreds of millions of users, then in order to filter, right, like a recruiter, whoever it might be, now has to resort to saying, okay, well, if 5,000 people came up in the search, I'm going to say you had to have gone to Harvard so that the 5,000 becomes 200, <laughs> right? You, you start, you then resort to going back to whatever didn't democratize in the first place. I, I see that time and time again with a lot of this stuff. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate because again, I think that they're created to be able to, to quote unquote democratize, but then end up doing the opposite because there's so much noise. How do you find the signal through the noise? It's such an interesting take. It just really has me thinking. And I loved this article. Really good stuff. I'm going to dip into the fishbowl to tie into the inequality like a component of, uh, of what we were just talking about. There's this chart I saw this week that is fascinating to just to, to see it visualized. Punch me in the face with the force of a thousand kings. This is from the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics. There's this chart that shows the difference between increases in productivity and increases in real incomes. So compensation per hour over the last 75 years. So it goes from 1947 to 2022. From 1947 to 1975, so that roughly 30-year period, real output increased by 115%, according to this. Real compensation 
increased by 96%. So they were like roughly like neck and neck, right? During the period you had productivity increasing, output increasing, and people were getting paid for it. And then once you get to that mid seventies point, the two start to diverge. Productivity continues to, to go up, but even at even higher rate. So basically like it starts to skyrocket and wages goes up like a tiny percent during each period. And so in, in some real output over that next period rose by 127%, real compensation rose by 63%, like half. It's, it's wild to see this divergence. There's so much going on here, right? So the divergence really happens around say 1975. Um, I think there's gotta be a tech component as the workforce moved away from a manufacturing based economy. I think the first question that comes to mind for me is, is this something that the gap's so huge now, it's not something that gets rectified anytime soon, but workers do have more bargaining power right now than they've had, at least in the last 20 years, it seems. I, I read another article in the journal this week specifically about tech workers. So it was targeted for chief information officers saying that uh, a 20% raise is almost stable table stakes at this point in the game. And in hot markets like Austin, Texas, a uh, 30% raise is very common. It, it said some companies has done as much as a 50% raise and for their top talent, this is very, very rare. So I don't want to lose the forest through the trees here, but in some cases they've seen in salaries double in the past 12 months. That's out of control. Oh my goodness. But long overdue right now, the question is, what types of roles, right? Is that, is that happening for, but yeah, long overdue. Um, it's kind of this, this gets back. I know I beat, I beat this drum all the time, but you know, what we talked about with capital in the 21st century, Pilchetti's book and R is greater than G Yeah, is that this is looking at real compensation per hour, right? So it's, it's wages, whereas compensation from capital investments, right? The people have made like that, that's where money is coming from after this point. It's the it's those those that were able to, through uh, whatever government forces and otherwise, buy housing, right during that post World War II period, and mm-hmm. those that were able to invest in in stocks or you know get whatever capital investments, their wealth increased during that period. But real wages, like the wages of workers, did not has been stagnant for quite a while. Um, just the the visualization. I mean, I could I could talk about this forever, but the visualization is just stunning. So we got to put that out there. Yeah, we definitely will. I mean, here's where I'm trying to connect the dots. Remember 12 months ago, maybe six months ago, we were talking about this income growth for the lower wage workers, whether that's someone that works at McDonald's or a grocery store or anywhere in between. And there was a lot of press around whether it's minimum wage going to $15 an hour or having trouble staffing some of those more like blue collar jobs and the substantial gains that were had there. I feel like now it's rippled into certain facets of the higher tech, um, higher white collar work. Like the article I read specifically talked about data scientists and like cloud computing expertise. But are you seeing that or am I just jumping to conclusions that maybe it's rippled all the way through? It started at the low end of the spectrum, but now everyone's seeing these wage increases in a way that probably bodes poorly for inflation. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm seeing it all throughout, reading about it. I should say all throughout too. I don't think it's it's uh, just contained in any type of worker, uh, any type of industry or anything of that nature. It's definitely ripping through from what I see. How does this get resolved, Diggles? Is it only with the Fed rising interest rates, raising interest rates? Um, this this stuff is super complicated, but I think so. I mean, at least I mean that that's what that's what can be done. I don't see how any other path, given where we are, how any other path is going to work out. I mean, it's we've we've put the economy in a place where we don't have a lot of choice. Everything is inflated, as we've talked about before, including now wages. Like there just there isn't relief at least that i know of i don't think there's relief that isn't like massive relief right i mean you've you've mentioned on here before last year you were talking about how no one's brave enough to go the volcker route right paul volcker yeah. back in the early 80s who jacked up interest rates up the wahihi in order to contain inflation but now just these past couple of weeks i've been seeing more and more references to powell sounding like volcker because powell is starting to come out with our federal reserve chair uh, Jer Jerome Powell is starting to come out and say basically the equivalent of whatever we got to do, we're going to do it right to get this stuff under control, um, which the market does not like. But I, I don't see what else we can do. I mean, like uh, we, we put ourselves on the edge. I mean, I love it because even if I'm quoting extreme examples, if you have people's salary doubling, there's something wrong. That's not like I, I love that you're always fighting for the worker and saying it's about time that their salary increases, but they shouldn't be doubling because that's where you end up with uh, ten trillion dollar bills because inflation just runs out of control, right? And so I'm so excited that he seems to be taking a tough stance on this. I mean, we just got to get back to some kind of equilibrium because living life on the extremes is. Uh... I don't know. It is a, it's nerve wracking and it gets, ends up getting scary. Like you're just constantly Elon Musking and betting the house. You know what I mean? Like every, every, uh, every year, it seems like there's a different fire, you know, that we have to figure out and fight. So I'm excited to get things into some sense of normalcy. Let me hit one more, uh, in match bowl. We did a bonus episode for premium subscribers, uh, last week. And we talked through a, a few stock picks there. One thing I just wanted to tie up is uh, we talked about West Fraser Group. Um, they announced buyback plan to take like, I think it's like 12 to 15% of their stock out of circulation, uh, which had a nice bump this week. So I just wanted to mention that before we dive into the meteor topics for our premium subscribers, because it might tie into the conversation we had last week on that. That What, what kind, of, kind of timing is that? Looking like you brilliant. You know what I mean? Uh, that's just pure luck. And and for full transparency, I Googled you and said, my time in on this is pure luck. <laughs> Doogles, good things happen. I'm going to make a tie-in, a little fishbowl tie-in to what you mentioned around the Twitter stock price and say it actually doesn't seem like it's that high of a price when the value of Netflix went down by about that same amount. It like went down one Twitter just this last week yeah i like that plan diggles we should start denominating things in in twitter terms yeah exactly <laughs> I, I do i do like that it's like how'd your portfolio do last quarter uh, about three twitters 
Apple is up three Twitters today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Netflix got criggity crushed. I mean, it's 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 been on the the downward trend, um, just like a lot of technology. But wow, they lost two hundred thousand subscribers in this past quarter, and nobody liked it. Nobody liked it. Netflix is now it has its drawdown is about seventy three percent. Was my quick calculation. Um, and that's over the last six months. So since like the October, November timeframe, 73% for Netflix. I mean, that's a FANG, right? FANG being the the stocks that are the market, right? It just, just not long ago, if you go back a year, Netflix was representative of what the stock market is, right? One of the large tech firms. And that thing is down 73%. Okay, so Bill Aikman, a great investor who I respect, the the headline here is just investing in is hard. In January, you took a huge stake in Netflix, and it had come in, it had come down significantly from peaks even at that time. And he wrote in January that he was delighted that the market presented us with this opportunity and that Netflix sported an attractive valuation. Then it fell off another thirty five percent, pretty much uh, most of that coming in one day. And he sold, which implies a loss of $400 million and wrote that he lost confidence in our ability to predict the company's future prospects. This is four, three months apart, Douglas, for a great yeah. billion invest, brilliant yeah. investor with a team of hundreds doing research. Isn't that crazy? Like this deserves both um, criticism and praise it's great yeah. that when as soon as he realized he made a mistake he got out but man i'm lucky i didn't lose 400 million for my investors this quarter i <laughs> yes well played well played yeah, you, have, you have a new bar that you're set yeah i i actually i really respect the rationale like the way that it was stated there wasn't a statement that was something like netflix isn't worth what we thought it was um the current valuation is too high like it wasn't something like that it was the inability for them to be able to predict. Like they, they just lost confidence in what it's going to do. And that uncertainty isn't worth it. I think it, it, it felt um, or feels even really methodical, right? Um, especially in comparison to, you know, um, there was someone that we got listener mail uh, about last week named Kathy Wood. I wasn't familiar uh, before <laughs> before that. But, you know, when Kathy's talking about this stuff, it's like, the western frontier wild you know like a cowboy you know just like i think this is going to increase by 30x over the next 10 years like no matter what fundamentals look like right and then you got bill ackman that's like eh, it's uncertainty and we don't have any place for that right i think it's like really respectable that's that's my take from it but 400 yeah 400 million dollars in that short period of time i don't know about what are your thoughts on netflix right now well, you know, I love uh, falling knives. Like my favorite thing is a stock chart down 80, 90% because it usually means there's a deal and I always go shopping for deals. So of course I pulled it up and tried to do an analysis and I just hate the thing, Dougals, even at its current <laughs> price. I just hate everything about it. That I, I So I don't know how, I couldn't have made an investment hypothesis. It's currently trading close to 200 bucks a share. I couldn't have made an investment hypothesis at three or 400, especially not 600 where it was in January. 
and I can't make an investment hypothesis today. There's a lot of debt there. There's a, again, our household went through recurring expenses in the past three weeks and Netflix is likely on the chopping block for us because there's so many more competitors in the space than there used to be that we have so many streaming services. We can't, we almost can't watch them all. And of those Netflix is one of the most expensive. So it just doesn't feel like the value for the money is there anymore. It's a, it's a little bit of a heartbreaker for me too. Cause if you remember, I used to own Netflix uh, as a, as a part of part of the model portfolio. Um, and then it triggered a sell at the beginning of 2021. So there was, there was a time where I was rooting hard for what Netflix was doing and seeing it like this is a, it's painful, but I think it is really interesting that in a number of ways, what one of the, one of the aspects that led to like the rise of Netflix and the dominance of Netflix is also a potential downfall at this point, which is around the, the binge nature of it. That when there were other services that you'd have to wait week by week, right? Mm-hmm. And be like, next Thursday, next Friday, it's coming out. But Netflix will release everything at once. And like, that's awesome, right? Like that was, that was a, a big piece of it. And now that's a potential disadvantage. Yeah, well, let's say you want to cancel the thing. You go, oh, there's two shows that I'm intrigued about. And give me a weekend to watch those. And then I'll cancel and I'll go six months or maybe a year before I have to sign up again. And then I'll pay for another month or two and and move on. It's There's going to be a lot of changes, right? Uh, I'll say I'm very happy that I don't run a business that's clearly based on new subscriber growth because that's what everyone f- freaked out about. Basically, quarter over quarter, they've had more subscribers than they did in the past. There, it was always a net positive and it was the first time it was a net negative and people just don't have to know how to deal with that. But that's a high bar to say the only metric that we care about is subscriber growth. Like you can't grow subscribers forever. Eventually you saturate the market. And going back to something you just stated, there was this article or post called The Bottom is Dropping Out of Netflix on Pajiba.com. And I'll just read a, a little quote from that. Why pay $20 a month for Netflix when you can pay $20 every four months and watch the final season of Ozark, the second seasons of Bridgerton and Witcher and Squid Game in one month and move to another streamer the next month and watch all their offerings? I think that's the question that everyone ends up asking. Uh, and Netflix is blaming this on the password sharing but (laughs) it's i think this is a this is a really big component of it i mean there's so much more uh competition obviously right now let's do a little quiz actually on that one in 2019 what percentage of uh streaming video watchers had three or more different streaming services they were paying for 2019 uh 15 percent 32%. 32%. Okay. So 32% had more than three or more services in 2019. What do you think that number is in 2022? 60%. That's actually very impressive. 58%. So it's gone from 32% to 58% in the last three years. Massive. And it's 7% have six or more. This is according to this Nielsen uh, state of play yeah. uh, survey. Six. I can't even name six services. Well, let's see. Okay, so you got Netflix, Prime Video, which is Amazon's thing, which comes with the Prime shipping. So that's effectively free. Hulu, Paramount Plus, Disney Plus, 
Apple Plus, HBO, uh, HBO Max, all the, I mean, the other ones, like Showtime has a competitor. Oh, that's right. So okay. I'm already okay. at more than six. Okay. Yeah. And good point. there's a, a few others out there. And then this bundling that happens, like I have a subscription to a website that gives me Paramount Plus, Plus for free. You can bundle Hulu, Disney Plus, and uh, ESPN Plus for a discounted price, which basically gives you one of those services for free. Apple TV is only five bucks a month. So this is the exact component I'm talking about. You're going, oh, you know what? I probably need Amazon Prime for other things. So just consider that free. That's a competitor to Netflix. Maybe I bought a new Apple device, so I got six months free of Apple TV, and maybe I bundle the Disney um, ownership services. All of a sudden, you have five services to stream from, and and Netflix is the most expensive of those. I just think it gets lost in the shuffle. I'm not excited about their future prospects in the short term, not at all. Yeah, what, what's for me, where buying a stock like this would have to come from is a bet on the operator, which in this case is Reed Hastings, right, and, and his leadership team. Um, and I say that because there are some times when stocks will get crushed like this, right? And you go, but that business though, right? Like that business is, is really solid. Like when I, you know, I've, I've mentioned and always, this is always research advice, not actual recommendations is what we talked about Twilio. And for me, Twilio is a company, if it gets the right price, like that business in my view is so solid that I believe there'll be a bounce back, right? Business plus the operators, but the business is so solid. This is yeah. a case where it's just like, do you think the entrepreneur is so solid they can kind of navigate through anything and they will figure something out? It's it's a it's just a bet on on the operator, which is hard to do, I think, when you're like 25 years in. Like it's it's different when like when uh when Amazon got crushed. I mean, I didn't buy Amazon back then, but I'm just like kind of pontificating. When Amazon got crushed in the early 2000s. Right. If people were like, it's a bet on Jeff Bezos and your company is basically five years in, then you go, there's, there's still, there's so much like juice to squeeze out of there. And Bezos is phenomenal. You could see that. Yep. But yep. when you're 25 years in and the size that Netflix is, it's hard. It's not that it's impossible. It's just really hard. Well, I'll say, I mean, Reed Hastings deserves lots of credit. I think the fact that he got the stock to 600 bucks a share or whatever it was is absolutely incredible. But I think the company was just overvalued and, and the competitive pressures are a magnitude different than they have been. The other thing I think of a competitor, Dougal's, which I wish I could buy independently of Alphabet and Google is YouTube. Right now, YouTube has an incredible business model, in my opinion, because the content creation that happens there is largely something that they don't have to pay significant amounts to acquire. And you have people like Mr. Beast, I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy, who will spend millions of dollars to produce a 15-minute video because he gets paid for it, but they have their business is leveraged where they don't have to make the bet that Netflix has to make and say, we're going to go out and pay $50 million for this new show. 
And then Netflix has all the risk of if people actually consume that show or not. The YouTube model is we're going to let the creators actually build the content. And if they make smart bets, they will be rewarded for it. But if not, they took on the risk. And combining that with what you were saying before around um, like Amazon Prime, uh, Prime Video effectively being free with Prime. And if you buy something in Apple, YouTube's also a part of that, as you mentioned, Alphabet, Google ecosystem. Yes. And it just makes me think, as does a does a standalone streaming service in today's market, does it work? Can you function in a competitive market when you're battling ecosystems? Or does it have to end up being something where it's a part of Apple? Like, is this when Netflix gets gobbled? I think it's Ooh, the, the, so that's the a really interesting point. The other thing, I really like the guys at the Sports Business Journal. Um, so I followed them for years. Um, they think Netflix's freak out reaction to this is going to be to jump into live sports because the traditional uh, media providers, video providers like CBS and Fox, TNT, et cetera, have found that the only way to keep an audience engaged, not the only way, w one of the easiest ways to keep an audience engaged is to put on an NFL football game or a college basketball game, right? So that's a pivot that Netflix could make where they increase their pricing power and Dougal's, they don't have the same issue with binging, right? If you have a Netflix subscription because you want to watch the football game and there's 18 weeks to the NFL season, you're going to be a subscriber that entire 18 week period. You're not going to be like, oh, I watched the one football game I wanted week three and now I'm done with this. That's interesting. The other potential thing, I don't actually know how realistic this ends up being though, is does Netflix end up trying to create its own ecosystem, maybe through a purchase of someone like a Roku? Do they end up trying to become a platform? Um, I think that I think that's a route. I think uh, yeah. they could, your, your push is, um, is like, it's the content route, right? You're going, is the type of content that we have sticky enough mm -hmm. um, or give us enough power? There's, there's gotta be something, I think though. It'll be interesting. Yeah, I like that. I should have known you'd bring it back to platforms, but that's a good... It, all your thoughts around ecosystems are very, very interesting. And I'll tell you, when Apple first announced that they were going to do Apple Music and do Apple TV, uh, Apple TV Plus, I was skeptical of it, but I'm seeing that ecosystem be really, really strong these days. And that seems like a positive play for them. It's diversifying their revenue streams away from... Uh, just selling iPhones, which will probably be challenged with the supply chain issues that are bound to come now with the COVID lockdowns in China. Yeah, fascinating stuff yeah. to watch. I can't wait to see where this ends up. And, and it's less pressure, right? And when I say less pressure, I'm not saying that Tim Cook's not yelling at whoever you know runs Apple TV Plus on a daily Tim basis. Tim Cook is always yelling in, yeah. in my <laughs> in my imagination. He's always yelling about the supply chain, yeah. but that's not their whole business. <laughs> right so yeah he's always yelling about he's in an alley somewhere yelling about this play <laughs> always all right what's what's next in your fishbowl there's a a quote we debated that i i think is so thoughtful uh this is morgan housel our boy of course he tweeted this week a lot of f financial debates are just people with different time horizons talking over each other Love did it. he summarize the show doogles is that what happened here 
No, that is not something. We, <laughs> we have the same time horizon. It's just that you talk a bunch of nonsense, whereas I have like brilliance, right? That's the, that, that's the whole thing. Um, I, I think this quote is so phenomenal. It is, it's, it's so, so right that there's, there's so many times where the underlying conversations being had is a difference in time horizon. Even if you go to the last combo that we just had around Netflix, right? Let's say that two people were saying, debating whether Netflix is a, is a great buy or not. Time horizon is likely really what they're talking about is one person might be like this month, like, do I think Netflix is going to be higher in a month because of dot, dot, dot. Another person could be saying, as I was mentioning, like, it's a bet on Reed Hastings and the operator. That's like a, a five to 10 year bet, right? Mm-hmm. But you're, you're having different conversations. I, I love this thing. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is something I think I'm pretty good at, but I'm sure I can improve. I think this is always your first or second question you should ask when you talk investing. It's like, yeah, investing for what time horizon? I also like to talk, you know, is it pre-tax, post-tax? Is it retirement, non-retirement? Like, these are one of the fundamental things that uh, you need to get straight in order to try and be on the same page. But I just, Morgan's gift is that he can take complex things and often put it in a sentence or two. What's brilliant about this is just that it's one sentence with so many layers to the onion. I'll tell you, Dougals, I read a... Uh, article this week breaking down Biden's 1.9 trillion pandemic relief bill and saying, how do you spend $1.9 trillion in this country and have an approval rating in the thirties and have no one excited about reelecting you, even if they're from your own party? That was brutal. That was well, just... <laughs> I, I mean, sorry, did I say anything true. that's not true? No, I didn't say it wasn't true. It's just like... <laughs> That just sucks. <laughs> so think about this, though. Let's pretend, oh, gosh, what can we do is a good analogy here. I don't know. If my job is to make people like me and someone gives me $10,000 in $100 bills and I'm at the cocktail party, going back to your analogy from next week, and I go around and hand people $100 bills, hopefully if they take a survey at the end of that cocktail party, people go, hey, Skippy's an all right guy. Yeah, we'd we'd invite him to the next cocktail party. Don't you think they probably would if I'm handed out hundred dollar bills? Yes, but not in the circumstance where they don't realize where the hundred dollars came from, and not in the circumstance where I tell them the hundred dollars might arrive ten years later. This article details um, Richmond, Virginia, uh, other mid sized towns throughout the country that grabbed up this uh, pandemic relief funding to build community rec centers that are five to seven years out. And a lot of the community members don't even know that they're getting a rec center five years from now. And if they do know they're getting a rec center five years from now, they don't know that it was paid for by Biden's rescue plan. They don't really know where the money's coming from at all. So this ties to Morgan's quote in a way because Biden chose, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong, we won't know for 20 years, he chose a certain approach to putting money to action as part of COVID and the pandemic, but it's certainly not paying off in the short term with people being willing to invite him to the next cocktail party. It's just fascinating. And one thing, this is not a, a even a political statement, but just a like a human statement, at least from, from my feelings. 
one thing that I think is interesting about Biden is he is all long-term thinking. Again, whether it's it's right or wrong, he's like all long-term thinking. And for someone that, I, I, don't, I don't know how to put this any other way, like won't be around for the long-term. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's pretty interesting. Again, is what he's doing for the long-term the right thing? Who knows? As you said, we might not know for, you know, 20 years or so, but that's all he's kind of thinking about. Um, something well, else I'm consistently me. yelling that politicians should think long-term yeah. and make investments with a long-term time horizon. I, I don't know that I fully agree with the fact that he's all long-term thinking, but I think he thinks long-term more than your average politician. Yeah. Yeah. And that should be applauded. But what we're seeing here is why many politicians think about what's going to happen over the next six weeks and six months rather than the next six to yeah. 20 years. Yeah. And if you can't get reelected, you don't have the ability to make more positive long-term change the next time around. So there's this fine balance there. But yeah, this isn't really about politics as much as it is about the Morgan quote and the strategy that, that we chose to take. Yeah, and another, uh, another article that this quote ties into for me is one in the Wall Street Journal. Um, I think this came out like a week or so ago. The title is The Stock Market's Future Ain't What It Used to Be. And what this article is about is how we've been in this time period, as we've discussed, where you could take a lot of risk in the market and it would it might pay off for you, like over the last few years. right? But this stock market is much more brutal and much less forgiving. And one of the things this, this says is with U.S. stocks off more than 7% and the bond market down almost 9% so far this year, many investors seem to feel like they have to take more risk to catch up. That I can see where a lot of people with short-term time horizons feel that way. And it's the exact wrong move for right now. I will say that unequivocally, right? Mm -hmm. this, is, this is a market when it's this volatile that will make or break folks if you have a short-term time horizon with the real quicks, right? It's, it is not gonna play around. When you, have, when you have these swings of 5% in a day, that is massive, right? Yep. And when people start to feel like you have to make up whatever the 10%, maybe 20% that your portfolio is down to make that up, to make a, this isn't, this is directionally correct, not exact math, but to make up 20% down, you have to be up like, I don't know, 25% or something like that, right? Yep. Like it always takes more to come up, to come up 25% is a, is big in the short term. That doesn't mean it can't happen, right? That can happen in a day sometimes, but can also go the opposite direction. So it is risky in a market like this to say, I'm going to have a short-term time horizon and I have to make up my portfolio right now. That's just, I get scared for folks. Um, that well, remember our favorite guy from like three or four episodes ago that was thought this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. Yes. Um, and when it was like something that happens every two weeks, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's this mentality is yeah. you got to make it up quickly. I I'll say I think this is the positive spin of what's happened with Facebook stock and Netflix stock. For the longest time, those so-called FANG companies, the reason they got branded together is they were just crushing the market. And so, and they were really, really large. Now that you have some of those high flyers, even Tesla's pulled back, I mean, not as drastically, but some of the stuff that seemed like it just went up and to the right for years and years and years is down 60 to 70%. And hopefully that changes the approach. I, it probably doesn't, but it should. 
to realize that you can't just buy Facebook, sit on your hands and count your piles of money. That's not how the stock market works. That's not how investing works. I mean, it's the voting machine in the short term, right? Ben Graham's yep. voting machine and yep. the, the votes are in people, right? <laughs> the, the votes are in right now. And to go back to the conversation we were having around Netflix, it's the time when things get hit by like this. It's the time when you step back and you go, is this a great business? That's not just about Netflix. I'm just going back to what we we're saying. Like is meta that's down that far is a solid business. Do I actually believe in it? Is Netflix a solid business? Do I actually believe in it? Right. When you have these big stocks that go down like that, it's a time where you have to ask that back up look at fundamentals, whether that those fundamentals are something like financial ratios, you know, or cash flows or PE, whatever, it could be something like that. Or it could be even, you know, betting the operator. Like, do I believe that Zuck can navigate this? Do I believe in the thesis around the metaverse, right? You just have to ask these more fundamental questions about the long term uh, during during times like this. Uh, so it's a this, this this is the market where investors are made, right, is is what I'll say. When you figure out who you are as an investor and who you are should not be short term. And some people might figure out who they are and run away to index funds that they never have to look at again because losing 70% of your money in Netflix is not a fun experience. Bill Aikman losing $400 million. Um, I'm sure he didn't enjoy any part of that no. experience over the past several months. This is not fun. I Dougal's is investing ever fun. I I love it. I think it's fun all the time. <laughs> I, I don't know. I I also love it. I also find it endlessly fascinating. I don't know that I'd ever call it fun. Even when you're making money, the way my perspective works, I'm always worried about losing that money. Or when I see a company go from deeply undervalued to what I think is fair valued, then I'm always worried about if it's overvalued. And it's the appropriate time to move to the next deep value thing. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I answered that uh, that question really quickly, but I think you have a good point. It's the the thing that is fun for me is more about the the thinking about the different companies and looking at companies and thinking about potential and looking at operators. The like the the business side of it and like the research side of it, I think is fun. The actual investing, less so. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> um, it is uh, uh yeah i mean it it's heart-wrenching right at times i think that's exactly right i think it's morgan that says this a lot but it, it might be many folks say this a lot but they talk about volatility being the like the cost of entry or the fee yep. cost right, of admission yeah cost of admission and i think that that gets to your your fun point right like is, is paying to get into something fun uh, probably not but being in there can be fun sometimes but you just have to know that there's a price to pay yep well and if you believe the behavioral economic economics guys who say that it's twice as painful to lose a dollar as it is to gain a dollar and if you're someone who checks your portfolio frequently you live you take a little cut with each of those paper losses when your portfolio goes down significantly so over the long term sure your portfolio goes up more than it goes down if you have a wise investing process. But even if it goes up two thirds of the time, you probably feel the pain from it going down one third of the time uh, more greatly. And therefore, maybe it comes out in the wash that like it, the emotions associated with your investing gains and losses are neutral. 
but I think very rarely are they hugely positive. And as I mentioned to you, this year, I'm not checking my portfolio frequently. <laughs> like I, I knew from the get <laughs> that this was going to be a time where I needed to, <laughs> I needed to step away. So my usual, you know, daily or weekly or whatever checking is, is not happening because it'd be too painful. Nice work, Dougals. Good yeah. work. Anything else in your fishbowl? No, that's it for me. All right, guys. Hit us on Twitter at Skippy Dougals. We're going to share a few articles uh, for you here shortly. Rate and review the pod. Thanks again for listening. Um, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you. <laughs>